Welcome to the Eight Limbs Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wagner, and I'm here to break down all the most important Muay Thai action over the past few weeks. It's been a while since I've just sat down and talked all about Muay Thai the whole podcast, but there were a lot of great fights and events in the past few weeks. There's a lot to dig into. So Lumpany still hasn't opened up yet. I've heard rumors that they're going to open up December, I think the 8th it was, for their anniversary, but no final word on that. So right now, all the the highest level Muay Thai is happening at Rajadamnern, and a few smaller stadiums like CM Omnoy and Thanacorn Stadium. It's been kind of interesting to see the the non-major stadiums because they often have um, like different different camera work and different kind of filming parameters. So with Roger Damnern, it's always really annoying trying to find Roger fights because they don't release those in full usually. You'll have to find either like a phone camera footage from somebody in the audience or they'll post like five minute highlights, which really sucks. Recently, Raj Damnern has been doing YouTube streams of their their main cards, which was really great. HD quality, uh, smooth frame rate and everything, which is pretty rare for Muay Thai footage. But they've stopped doing that, and now the, the main events are hidden behind a paywall, which sucks. Thanacorn Stadium has been one that's been used a lot while Lumpany's been closed. And I like Thanacorn Stadium because they usually have the full events in or full fights in pretty decent quality and decent frame rate, which is often hard to find with Muay Thai fights. Um, there was a, a new promotion, I think, at a new stadium that held the recent Rodtang versus Ganar fight, which was the kind of the main event over the past few weeks. That was uh, kind of a super card, too. They had Rodtang, Jitmoignan against Kanar, Sorjor, Tongprijin. Uh, I'm doing my best to pronounce these names, guys. Please bear with me. I am not good at it. I don't know how to say them, but I will try my best. Uh, Ranachai Torumintra fought Seowak Buntham on the same event. Ranachai is the ranked number one at 122 pounds right now, and Seo Buntham is the Raja Damnern 122-pound champion. Seo Buntham's brother, Seiro Buntham fought on that card as well, fighting Swaysat Paymanberry. Seiro is the Raja Damnern 118-pound champ, and Swaysat is the Channel 7 118-pound champ. And finally, Prajinchai fought Kompet Sitsarawatsa, Prajinchai is the Lumpany 122-pound champ. Kompet is the Lumpany 118 champion, but he's recently moved up to 120, 123-ish pounds. So that was a really great card with a lot of stars on it. So let's dig into that right away. That was on that card was on Sunday, October 4th. The main event was Rodtang Jitmoignan against KNR Sorjor Tongprijin. Rodtang and KNR fought once before uh, about a month or so ago. And Kanar kind of owned him the first time. It was the, the typical Rodtang performance against a Southpaw Femu. He doesn't really handle those well. Kanar kicked him, kicked him in the arms and the body as he came forward on the outside pretty easily, exploiting that open side body kick. And whenever Rodtang got in range, he would get a little bit wild with his punching combinations, and Kanar would find easy clinch entries uh, and just duck under his punches and catch a body lock, tie him up and land knees, or counter him with elbows. And it got to the point where in the 
later fourth in the fifth rounds in their first fight, Gaynar was kind of just hitting reactive clinch entries to everything Rod Tang did, taking him down and like got on top of him and mount a few times. So Gaynar didn't have too much trouble with him in their first fight. And that was kind of what people, what most people expected here, I think, myself included. Gaynar was a pretty big favorite, if I remember correctly. But Rod Tang changed a lot of, a lot of tactics and his style up for this fight and came in with a really impressive performance. Instead of chasing after Gaynar this time, Rod Tang was a lot more measured. He came out uh, kind of in a almost completely square stance. Sometimes he would have his rear leg forward into kind of a southpaw stance, but mostly he was standing with his legs completely square, and that allowed him to really close off the open side body kick, which is what troubled him so much in the first fight, that whenever he tried to come forward to find his punches and kicking combinations, Gaynar could just slam that open side kick into his arms or into his body and slide out of range. So he would come forward in that square stance, which allowed him to to be really light on his rear leg. Um, he could lift his rear leg up constantly to check those kicks and to dissuade them. And he would also it also closes off the open side. So when you have when you're an orthodox fighter against a southpaw, they have all that meat in the squishy part of your body. They can easily kick their leg can kind of fit right in there, slam into the like the the little meaty parts of the the ribs that are housing the organs and that you really don't want to get kicked in. And that pocket that they can kick, it also, it doesn't just hurt a lot more than getting kicked in the in the other side, the closed side around the back. It physically pushes you off more. So if you're closing somebody down who's trying to kick the open side, you can't keep taking those kicks and pushing forward. It creates like a barrier that you can't walk through. And the guy can back up to create distance or angle off. With Rod Tang in his square stance or in southpaw, he could close that off. And KNR wasn't kicking into that meaty flesh anymore. He was kicking into like his lats and his back. So even when Gaynar was able to land the kicks, which were a lot harder due to Rod Tang's light rear leg, which he could lift up to check, even when KNR could land those kicks, they didn't physically move Rod Tang as much, and Rod Tang was able to counter. And Rod Tang did a lot better at advancing slowly and measured. He would eat up space and remain defensive until he got Gaynar to the ropes and then open up with punches. Once he got Gaynar to the ropes is when he did most of his work in this fight, and the square stance helped him a lot here when he was in having his feet level instead of um, like heavily staggered or switching into southpaw. His square stance concealed his left hook entries, whereas in the first fight he would kind of have to leap into range with them. Here he could just kind of advance slowly, eat up space, and then because he's he's standing really square, Gaynar wouldn't really know what to look for as easily. In the first fight he could use the left hook and the long right hand as triggers. He would hand fight Rod Tang's lead hand to prevent jabs, and then all he really had to worry about was Rod Tang either loading up on the lead hook, which he could see and duck into the clinch, or Rod Tang firing the rear hand off from too far away to really land it reliably, in which case Gaynar could just slip it into the clinch. But here with Rod Tang's square stance, he could throw off, he could get closer and then throw off both sides more reliably, so it concealed those left hook entries and meant that he didn't have to cover so much with his rear hand which made it a lot less predictable and allowed him to threaten punches off both sides. Uh, the stance switching and the, the square stance also opened up powerful low kicks from Rod Tang uh, in the first fight with the, the southpaw orthodox distance and just the, the way their legs um, match up. He wasn't able to get off his clean low kicks that he likes a lot, but he was able when he was square and marching forward or standing in southpaw, he could kick Gaynar's leg with those um, outside leg kicks and he used that to kind of score and do damage while advancing without having to open up a lot with punches that Gaynar could counter 
or he would catch or block Gainar's kicks and return powerful low kicks to punt him out of stance and make it easier for Rodang to pressure him. In round three, at one point, Gainar blocked a left hook and countered with an elbow and got what was a pretty clear knockdown, but the ref didn't call it. Rod Tang kind of immediately popped up and postured, like shook his hands around and was like, ah, I'm fine, nothing happened. And the ref kind of let him get away with that. I'm not sure how the fight might have changed if that didn't go through, because that was definitely a knockdown. KNR just knocked him clean off his feet with a clean elbow to the face. Um, Rod Tang might have been a little bit more desperate to score and might have chased more, giving KNR more openings, but that didn't end up happening. Um, so instead of being able to kick on the outside and counter his committed entries like in their first fight, Gaynar would be slowly worked to the ropes and then because Rodtang was putting combinations on him once he got to the ropes, he was often forced to enter with punches uh, before he got to the ropes to try and take some ground back because his kicks weren't working as well to keep the distance. And with Gaynar actually entering with punches this time, instead of just standing there waiting for Rodtang to open up and counter, Rodtang was able to get off some nice counter punches. Uh, when KNR was forced to enter with like the, the rear straight or try to jab in, Rodtang did a pretty good job slipping and countering those. Gaynar's clinch work was a lot messier in this fight, and again, that's because of Rodtang's his stance and how measured he was. In the first fight, Rodtang had to cover so much distance that his entries, entries were really predictable, and Gaynar would just be easily able to duck a left hook or slip a straight and enter the clinch really cleanly, immediately get to his desired positions, immediately lock up that body lock, and then he could just stall Rodtang out, knee him a couple times, or trip him. But with Rodtang being a lot more measured and slowly eating up space, Gaynar didn't have those easy entries, those easy reactions to find, and he had to close distance himself into the clinch, which is always a bit of a, like a more a messier proposition. Uh, if somebody, if you can get somebody desperately closing distance and losing their feet punching at you, it's so much easier to just cleanly slip something and tie up. They're off balance, they don't have their frames in, and you can get to whatever position you want. But if they're if they're all set, they're in a high guard, they're in a strong stance, and you have to close distance on them and find the clinch, it's a lot harder. You have to work much harder to get to your preferred positions. And when Gaynar closed distance and tried to clinch him, it was a lot less clean. Rod Tank can counter him on the way in with punches, or he was able to frame off and hit him while Gaynar was trying to solidify a position. And once Kanar got into the clinch, because he had to work hard to get there, he was less able to stifle the offense and get off his own. In the fourth round after getting dropped, Rod Tang came back and put heavy combinations on Gaynar, worked him to the ropes, um, landed some really nice punches, significant punches that were making Gaynar kind of ran away at a few points in the fight. Rod Tang was also landing some good leg kicks as Kanar tried to circle out on the ropes. Gaynar came out chasing in the fifth round, but wasn't really able to do enough to take it back and kind of conceded. Gaynar did try some teeps, which I liked in this fight, especially with the square stance of Rodtang and the, the southpaw switching. Um, if you have a, a really square stance where your hips are parallel, you become a, your body becomes a much wider target and teeps are more open. But the teeps Gaynar used weren't um, super well executed. His lead leg teep, he couldn't really find the distance on it. He didn't have enough power on them, so Rod Tang was able to just kind of push through them. And the, the rear leg TP through was a little bit more committed, but Rod Tang did a good job parrying that to the side and countering. So he was able to stay on KR consistently without getting teeped off. When they inevitably rematch, and I think that's probably the, the next fight for both guys, I'd like to see KR use more lateral movement before he gets to the ropes. Um, in this fight, Rod Tang, he'd walk him back to the ropes and Gaynar would kind of go back in a straight line, trying to find distance on his kicks. 
but since he couldn't get the kicks off, he would find himself walked back to the ropes, and then Rod Tang would be able to get on him, on him with punching combinations. Um, and when he tried to pivot off the ropes, once he was already on them, Rod Tang could intercept him with leg kicks. But if he if he used more lateral movement, uh, sidestepping and pivoting before he got on the ropes, he could turn Rod Tang and probably set up his kicks more effectively, especially since with the the square stance and the measured pressure that Rod Tang was taking, there's a lot more opportunity to escape the ropes and create angles when he's coming forward, when he doesn't already have you on the ropes. So I think that could be something Gaynar could have a lot of success with in the rematch. The co-main event on the October 4th card was Ranachai Toromintra against Seowak Sichabuntham. Ranachai is ranked number one at 122 pounds, and Seowak is the Roger Damner and 122 pound champ, so this was a very relevant matchup. Ranachai is a slick, powerful southpaw kicker who mostly works with the open side body and head kick. Uh, Seowak Sichabuntham and his brother Seodo Sichabuntham are really, really cool blitzy elbow and knee fighters. They do a lot of work in the clinch, but they're also really good at setting up their, their knees and elbows with kind of raids. They'll feint in and out a lot, like kind of a, a Robert Whitaker type style, where they're always doing these constant bouncing in and out feints to, to condition their opponents so they can kind of leap in with those elbow and knee blitzes. It's a really fun, interesting style to watch, but Ranachai did a really good job shutting down Seowak's raids. Seowak was looking to, to, to feint in and out and score those blitzes and also score from mid-clinch range where he'd frame off and try to land elbows and knees, where Ranachai was mainly looking to land kicks on the outside and use the clinch to just tie up and stall and buy time so he could get back on the outside and kick more. Ranachai did a really good job keeping himself either all the way out or all the way in and avoiding that dangerous mid-clinch of Seowak where Seowak can land those devastating elbows and knees. Ranachai was angling off to the open side to keep Seowak turning as he pressured um, and using those strong kicks on the arms to keep Seowak at bay. So you can see what I was talking about in um, the, the Gaynar versus Rotang fight in this one where you can use those really hard open side kicks to just slow the ascent of your opponent. And it doesn't really matter if they land clean or if they take it on the arms or whatever. It's it's still just, just by the force and power of the kicks forces them to, to stand in place and bars them from coming forward, and you can use those to, to prevent them from closing distance and to get space to angle off. Ronichai did a really good job using a forward check to shut down Seowak's kicks and blitzes. He would bring his, when he checked, instead of just pulling it up in his stance, he would kind of bring his rear leg forward. And Seowak uses the threat of his kicks to set up his elbow and knee blitzes. So having that, that forward check where um, he wasn't just lifting his leg up in his stance, uh, so Seowak couldn't easily faint in and out and draw the check and then hit him with blitzes as he lifted his leg he would he would check forward and kind of just block that space so Seowak couldn't enter into it and it really shut down those blitz attacks really well and also prevented the kicks so Seowak couldn't play his elbows and knees off the kicks because he wasn't really able to get his kicks going. Seowak got out kicked pretty cleanly at range and started looking to press forward into the clinch but Ranachai did a really good job tying up his arms on the inside or framing off to break his balance and prevent offense. So Ranachai would either be like wrapping around his head or clinging onto his arms so Seowak couldn't free them an elbow, or he would be framing off with his, his hand across the face, pushing Seowak away from him. So he did a really good job preventing Seowak from opening up in the clinch. Seowak had a pretty good round three and came back a little bit, and then Ranachai got more aggressive in round four, closing distance with kicks and knees, and striking into the clinch to tie up and prevent counters. So Ranachai was using the clinch really well here, both defensively and kind of as a way to 
to cling on after his strikes and make sure Sayawet couldn't return. Like uh, You see Floyd Mayweather do that a lot where he'll hit you and then immediately grab onto you so you can't counter him. And then he'll, like, he just stalls until the ref breaks it. So Ranachai would either do that, hit and stall until the ref breaks it up, or he would just kind of limit Sayoak's offense in the clinch and then get out and go back to distance striking. Ranachai did a really good job shutting down the elbow entries. He would often, when Ranachai was, or when uh, Sayoak was able to get in with elbows, Ranachai would often slip them. His straight elbows, Sayoak does really well. He'll throw those thrusting elbows or uppercut elbows. Um, where he just kind of pushes his elbow forward and puts his hip into it. Uh, and Ranachai would kind of slip outside those and enter the clinch, and it would give him a good position with his head outside Sayoak's arm. And he'd use that to slip around to the back and land some strikes or to pivot off the ropes and get back into open space. Sayoak eventually started trying to, to go more towards punching combinations because his clinch and kicks weren't working as well as he'd hoped. Ranachai did a really good job using a long guard to deflect Sayoak's punch combos. So this was a really great performance from Ranachai, and now that he's he's number one at 122 now, so he should probably be getting a title shot soon. I'm not really sure how the, the title shots work in modern Muay Thai. They, they seem really political, and just a lot of guys are like, you can beat the champion twice in your division and still not get a title shot. So I'm not really sure how that works, if they'll make a rematch at Raja Damnern, but I would, I'd say that's probably a distinct possibility that we see Ranachai fight for Sayoak's Raja Damnern championship belt next. Prajinchai and Kompet Sitsarawatsa was the next fight on this card. Prajinchai weighed in at 120 pounds for this fight, while Kompet weighed 123. So Kompet got a 3-pound weight allowance. Prajinchai is a slick outside fighter, while Kompet is a heavy pressure fighter, Really works really well in the clinch with knees, and has pretty heavy hands and kicks on the outside as well. Prajinchai was looking to score with kicks on the outside early and catch and counter Kompet's kicks. Whereas Kompet would immediately counter kick against any landed kick of Prajinchai's, and when Prajinchai caught his kicks, he would try to extend his leg to push off and create distance so Prajinchai couldn't score off that. And that led to some cool sequences here. You could see them adjusting to each other off the kick catch. I posted a clip of it on Twitter, but um, Prajinchai caught one of Kompet's kicks, and he, he pushed off with his shin across the hip, um, so Prajinchai couldn't score off that kick, so he created distance and pushed them away. And then... A couple seconds later, Prajinchai caught another kick, and Kompet went to do the same thing, push off with his leg and extend on the hips so Prajinchai can't close distance. But this time he collapsed the, the frame with his leg and led him onto a punch that was cool. And then the next time, Prajinchai caught one of his kicks. Instead of trying to go forward and deal with that knee bar or knee shield across his hips, he just tossed it to the inside and counter-kicked. Both guys were hand-fighting really actively. This is one of the, the most interesting hand-fighting displays I've seen in any recent fight. Kompet was looking to fight the hands in order to enter the clinch and to, to bar Prajinchai's punches as he closed distance, and Prajinchai wanted to kill the clinch entries by controlling hands and using them to keep using the hand fighting stuff in Kompet's hands and parrying his, his hand extended hands to keep him at distance and set up his kicks on the outside. Prajinchai did a really good job using that hand fight and uh, his frames to prevent clinch entries. He folded his rear arm across his face in kind of like a modified cross guard type thing. So when Kompet went to reach for a collar tie, he would kind of run to the forearm and not be able to get that tie around the neck. Prajinchai also did a really good job parrying Kompet's extended hands when he, he extended his hands to try and hand trap into the clinch. Prajinchai would parry the hands down and pivot away to set up kicks. He also did a really good job framing inside the biceps with his hands 
um, during mid-clinch exchanges. So when Compet tried to reach in from range and tie him up, he'd frame inside the biceps and use that to steer him and kind of exit or to land strikes of his own. Compet did a really good job himself countering those frames and hand traps by exploiting Prajanchai's extended hands. He started working more with stepping knees, so Prajanchai would extend his hands and try to try to tie up the hands or bar the path into the clinch, and Compet would just lift up his leg, um, show the hand fight to get Prajanchai reaching out and knee him in the body, or he would use strong hooks around the outside to, to get around the frames and to make him collapse them down the middle so he could enter the clinch easier. Um, the, the fight was really close early, and Compet kind of stepped it up a bit around the fourth round. Uh, he was marching forward with knees a lot more, pushing Prajanchai back, throwing powerful right hooks around his frames, and keeping on him to enter the clinch. Compet did a really good job entering the clinch on angles. This is something I really like about Compet in general. He does that a lot. He won't uh, always just try to come straight on to enter the clinch, but he'll start with, he'll enter in like sidesteps or pivots or shift forward. So he's taking a diagonal angle as he comes in and then he'll grab onto you and kind of turn turn you with him as he steps in. Um, so it kind of helps him bypass the frames because if you have your arms extended, those, those frames are powerful straight forward, straight in front of you. You have leverage to push somebody off straight in front of you. But if they step in diagonally and then turn you with them as they enter into the clinch, those frames, they're kind of bypassed. They don't have the power anymore. Uh, you can't you can't push off to the side of you as effectively as you can push off in front of you. So Compat was using those angled clinch entries well to, to kind of disturb Prajanchai's frames and let him get cleaner bites on, on the clinch positions he wanted. Prajanchai did really well with his kicks and footwork early, but as the fight wore on, Compet kind of got in on him more consistently and wore him out. Compet ended up winning via split decision, and it was a close fight. I thought Compet won as well. Uh, since they, they had the three-pound weight advantage as well, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see a rematch of these two pretty soon. Finally, the last fight I'll talk about on that October 4th card was Suesa Paymanbury versus Seoro Sichabuntham. Seoto is the Roger Damner 118-pound champ, while Swaysat is the Channel 7 118-pound champ. Seoto took the fight on short notice. I forget exactly how long. It might have been a week or so, but Swaysat's original opponent pulled out. Seoto was looking for a lot of those blitzing entries that Seolek was trying to do in his fight. Uh, he fought with a really light lead leg, so he would pick it up constantly to show kicks and then hop forward while picking up his lead leg to kind of use that as an entry feint. He was able to draw out some nice right-hand counters and then kick under it to the body. Um, and then if Swaysat backed up when he did that, that bouncing entry feint, he could just step forward off the hop and throw his rear leg as a kick. At the end of round two, there were a few clinch exchanges that Swaysat caught the better of, and it looked like he figured out he could kind of bully Seoto in the clinch. In round three, Seoto came back and tried to push the clinch heavier, but Swaysat got the better of him there still. Swaysat did a really good job controlling the left collar tie arm when they were in the clinch. Seoto would try to grab the collar tie behind the head and use it to land strikes. Swaysat would cross his own arm over top of it and kind of put his forearm in the crook of the elbow and use that to get leverage to turn him and to land elbows on his other side. And then when Seoto tried to push the arm deeper and move into a lock behind the head, um, Swaysat would cross face him off. He'd cross his own arm over Seoto's arm and like push on the chin, breaking his balance and lead, leading him into elbows. Uh, so like the the basics of that, you're pushing them away. Your arm is across their arm that's trying to grab your neck and you're pushing their chin away. 
and the natural reaction to that is to push into you really hard because if they if they go with it and move backwards you can turn them easily and land knees so they're pushing back in hard and you can use that frame to land elbows out of and collapse it and then their their head will kind of naturally spring onto your elbows and Swaysat was doing good work with that. Swaysat also did a really good job punching in and out of the clinch which is something you don't see too often with Moy Cows. Um, usually they're more focused on tying up with their arms or extending them to hand fight but Swaysat was doing a really good job landing hard punches in those clinch exchanges and the mid-range hand fighting exchanges. Uh, Sayoto did good work with knees once he was in mid-clinch range, but he had to walk through hard punches to get there. And Swaysat did a really good job hitting him and angling him, angling off on exit. Uh, so when Sayoto would come in with extended hands looking to tie up and land knees, and before he could get really any grips or get into the range he wanted, Swaysat would hit him with a couple hard punches, hooks or uppercuts, and then he'd back out at an angle, so Sayoto would have to stop and turn and couldn't had to break his momentum, and then Swaysat could hit him more. He did um he would frame across his face with a cross face too, and land uppercuts out of that, and then angle off backwards out of it. So Sayoto would kind of be blinded to the the uppercuts that were coming, and then when he when the cross face was removed and he went to come forward and clinch again, Swaysat had already angled out, so he'd have to turn, stop and turn, and then get hit with more punches. Sayoto had a bit of a comeback in the end of round three where he landed some good knees from the clinch. But then in round four, Swaysat came out heavy and put more pressure on him, wore him down in the clinch and put big punching combinations on him. Sayoto lost his mouthpiece in a losing exchange, in a losing clinch exchange early in the fourth round. And then Swaysat mostly controlled the fight from there. Sayoto came out in round five really hot and threw pretty much everything at him looking to, to come back and take the fight back. He started pressuring heavier and looking to put hard punching combinations on Swaysat. He also threw a, some spitting shit, which was neat, but it didn't really do much. Swaysat was mostly able to defend and tie up or avoid most of the offense, although he got cracked with a couple hard punches. And the fight ultimately went to Swaysat for the strong third and fourth rounds. Sayoto called for a rematch after the fight due to the short notice, so I think, again, they'll probably make that fight next. So a lot of rematches are likely to come out from this card. On Thursday, October 8th, Nunglang Lak Jitwangnon fought Chujaron Debren Sarakam. I think something like that. Uh, Nunglang Lak is ranked number one at Roger Damnern's 140-pound division, while Chujaron is ranked number eight at Roger Damnern's 147-pound division. They fought here at 142 pounds. Both guys have pretty heavily clinch-based offense. Nunglang Lak does a lot of work with knees and elbows on the way in, while Chujaron is more of a kicker on the outside. It was a range striking match for the first two rounds. Both were throwing with a lot of power, which is a little bit rare for the early rounds. Nunglang Lek was advancing with hard punches. Chujaron was consistently scoring with kicks off both sides. Um, and he was using, he was mixing them up well too. He was using a consistent lead leg body kick and also stepping into the rear body kick. So Nunglang Lek couldn't get too comfortable checking off one side and he had to deal with that dual threat. Chujaron was really strong in the clinch. If you look at the, there's a picture uh, from the weigh-ins. That was posted on CM Fight News Facebook page. Chujaron looks way bigger than him. He's like he's quite a bit taller and also way wider. Uh, Nunglang Lek had to move up for this fight. I think he's usually fighting a little bit lower, whereas Chujaron fights around 147 often. They they fought earlier earlier this year. I think it was near the beginning of the year, and Nunglang Lek controlled the fight. He was able to beat Chujaron at range and in the clinch. But this for this one, he said Chujaron felt a lot stronger, and he definitely looked it. Um, so whereas Nunglang Lek in their first fight was able to destabilize Chujaron in the clinch when he threw knees, he really struggled to do that here. Chujaron was super strong in the clinch and he was able to stifle Nunglang Lek's offense in there. 
using underhooks to push him to the ropes and control or collar ties to to move, bring his head down and knee him. And Chujuron looks super strong in the clinch here too. Nunglanglek said after the fight that he got a lot stronger and that he just couldn't, he didn't have the strength in the clinch anymore. Um, and you could see like Chujuron was uh, yanking his head down at points on entries, which is something you rarely see. So there definitely seemed to be a big strength and size disparity there. Chujuron mostly controlled him in the clinch and did a lot of work with those kicks at range. Nunglanglek was trying to sneak around to a side clinch a few times, but Chujuron did a really good job angling out and slipping in a collar tie when he tried that. And as the fight went on, Chujuron worked more consistently with the knees from collar ties and underhooks and kind of overwhelmed Nunglanglek in the clinch. Nunglanglek had some success with hand trap elbows while closing distance, but once they actually tied up on the inside, uh, Nunglanglek wasn't very effective. Chujuron was too strong for him. And as the fight went on, Chujuron was increasingly, increasingly wearing on him and yanking his head down. There were a couple times in, I think, the, the fourth or fifth round where Chujuron would just reach out and yank Nunglanglek's head down into the clinch right from range, which is something you really don't see often. Nunglanglek looked really worn out in the last round. Nunglanglek hasn't really seemed to be in top form recently. I know before his last fight with Talanchai, where he got dominated, he said that uh, he hadn't really had time to train much in his camp. So I think the, the pandemic stuff is affecting him pretty badly. Um, Taunchai is a bad matchup anyway, so I wouldn't have expected him to look good in that fight. But he's definitely looked off recently, so hopefully he's able to return to form soon. On that same card, on October 8th, Poincon Torserat fought Petsomai Sorosomai. Both these guys are kind of mid-range kickers with good hands. Petsomai is one of the better boxers in Muay Thai right now. He's coming off a, a super impressive domination of Lumpany 100 and... I think 115-pound champ, Shanalert Manayathan, where he just completely worked him with kicks on the outside and counterpunches. Poincon was ranked number three at Roger Damner's 115-pound division back in February, although he's lost quite a few since then, I haven't and I haven't been able to find updated rankings, so I'm not too sure what's going on there now. Pet Somai is ranked number two in Roger Damner's 112-pound division, and this fight was at 116 pounds. Poincon did a good job counter-kicking when Pet Somai entered early, but Petsomai made sure to be last in kicking exchanges, so Poincon would counter the entries and then Petsomai would re-counter well. Petsomai kept increasingly taking outside angles on his entries to land knees and counter Poincon's body kicks. Uh, so what he would skip off to the outside when entering, so Poincon's body kicks would land with a lot less force and he would be moving in the direction of them as they hit him. Uh, Petsomai was generally quicker with his rear leg check. He was better at defending the kicks than Poincon. Despite doing a lot of work with his hands, Petsomai has a more square and narrow stance than Poincon's long stance, which let him bring that rear leg up quickly to check the kicks. Petsomai later started kicking on the lead to bait out a return kick and sweeping Poincon off them. Poincon ended up taking the decision. I'm really not sure why. Petsomai looked to be landing cleaner and sweeping more often throughout the fight. He came out chasing in the, the fifth rounds. I'm not sure if, he, if like a dynamic in the fight told him he was down or if his corner noticed something about the gamblers and told him in between rounds uh so i'm not really sure if this was like a robbery which kind of looked like to me or if it's just one of those muay thai scoring works in mysterious ways things but i definitely think petsamai should have won that fight in the last fight from that card on the eighth we have boonlong kong swanpa against petsman sora salmon garment boonlong is ranked number nine in roger damner's 122 pound division and petsman is ranked number seven in lumpany's 102 pound division Boonlong has been on a really good run lately. In his last fight, he finished the, I think, the number two ranked fighter at 122 
I think it was Saxry, but I might be wrong. He finished him in the second round with a kick on the arm. or just destroyed his arm and put him down really early. Boonlong is one of the hardest kickers in Muay Thai right now. He's really fun to watch. He did the same thing, exact same thing against Petsaman here. He finished him with a kick on the arm in round two. He was pelting him with kicks on the arms and at range in rounds one and two. And Petsman was actually getting his lead leg up consistently to check the body kicks. But Boonlong's form is so tight and efficient that the kicks would sneak in just above the knee and land on the arms anyway, even though Petsaman was getting his legs up in time to check. With Boonlong's kicks, he doesn't take like a big step and you don't see his hip turn through. Everything comes off the same motion. It's just a tiny little step forward, or he'll even throw it directly from his stance. Sometimes you'll see him just kind of sneak the lead leg back a little bit to get enough weight onto it to pivot into that kick. His kicks come up super fast, and they're super powerful too. He's finished. This is his second opponent. He's finished in round two just with kicks on the arms. Uh, he was also landing some clean body kicks by putting them behind punch combinations, so he can just murder your arms at range, or he can distract you with punches and then sneak in the kick to the body. Then after taking several kicks on the arms, uh, Petsman ate a hard kick there in late round two and just couldn't take anymore. I'm not sure if it actually broke his arm, but it definitely fucked something up and he just went down. So Boonlong is absolutely one to watch. He's been tearing through 122 pounds lately, finishing number two in Roger Damnern and number seven in Lumpany's 122-pound division in back-to-back fights in round two with kicks on the arms. is wild. Keep your eye on Boonlong. I wouldn't be surprised if he does some big things. There are a couple more noteworthy main events that I'll just go over quickly. On October 7th, on Wednesday, Kumendoi Pet Jaronvit fought Petsuntri Jitmwangnan. Kumendoi is one of my favorite fighters to watch right now. He's super aggressive. He's a really powerful mid-range striker. Good power kicks off the open side. Um, he has a good switch lead leg kick too. He's a really powerful puncher. Puts his punches and kicks together in combinations really well. And he's an aggressive counterpuncher. He's one of the better counterpunchers in Muay Thai. Um, he fought Seodo Sichabuntham who I was talking about earlier, twice back-to-back and messed him up in both fights. Did a really good job coming forward, drawing out his attacks and countering them with punches. Uh, so Kumendoi consistently at- advanced behind hard body kicks and punching combinations. Petsuntri was trying mostly to intercept with knees and body kicks, but he wasn't able to get too much done here. Kumendoi's aggressive counterpunching dissuaded a lot of Petsuntri's attacks as he uses the punches to counter Petsuntri's step-ins and he would catch and counter kicks. Kumendoi... One thing I really love about him is he consistently counters in combination, which really lets him outscore his opponents in exchanges and also track their exits. So when Petsuntri would come in, he wouldn't just like slip it and try to throw one punch back. He would throw a punch back, and then when Petsuntri was exiting, he'd follow him with like three or four punches and then put a kick on the end of it. So there's if you come in to hit him, there's no escaping it. You're going to get hit back even if you land. So you can land a punch on him if he's chasing you, but he'll, he'll come back with like three or four punches and kick you on the exit. Makes it really hard to beat Kumendoi in exchanges. He dropped Petsuntri here with a flurry in round two, and Petsuntri was forced to come in round three, sorry, and Petsuntri was forced to come forward afterwards. And then Kumendoi f- slowed the pace down a little bit and fought off the back foot, making Petsuntri come forward, and Petsuntri wasn't able to do much there. So Kumendoi in the fifth round was mostly content defending and slotting in some kicks when he had his distance. It was a fun little domination from Kumendoi. In Kumendoi's last three fights, he beat Seodo Sichabuntham twice back to back. Seodo is the Roger Damner and 118-pound champion. Kumendoi was in the 118-pound division too, so I'm not too sure why they did that twice without making any of them a title shot. Uh, and then in his next fight, he moved up to, I think, 122 and fought Seodo's brother, Seowak, and he lost that one. Kumendoi was back down at 119 pounds for this fight. I'd like to see him get a title fight at 118 soon, although I don't know if they want to make the Seodo fight three times so close. We'll see what happens next for that. 
On Friday, October 2nd, Super Bowl Tadid 99 fought Pet Yutong or Quan Wang. Pet Yutong is ranked number four at Lumpany's 135 pound division. This fight took place at 136 pounds for Super Bowl, and Pet Yutong weighed in at 137. Pet Yutong was using a really nice body jab in the first couple rounds. I really liked how he used that. He was throwing it as a hard jolting punch. Uh, you don't see body jabs used too consistently in Muay Thai, but if you watch guys that use them more often, someone like Wichinai Porntui, he used uh, like a light, non-committal body jab to set other things up. He would faint level changes a lot and play lead hooks to the head and jabs to the head off of it. Pet Yutong was using it as a really strong jolting punch. Like you'll see Floyd Mayweather throw his body jab. It's not so much like it's not a non-committal setup punch as it is like a stopping punch. You can throw that and back them off with it. He was really stepping into it hard and planting his feet on that body jab. And when he threw it, you would see it would knock Super Bowl back a lot. It was actually doing, seemed to be doing some significant attritional damage. Uh, and then he would, he'd faint it more and then go up to the head with it as well. And the level change feints uh, prevented him from, prevented Super Bowl from picking up on it and like countering with a knee or a kick or anything. So it was an interesting tactic to use against a clincher like Super Bowl who wanted to come forward and overwhelm him in the clinch. As the fight went on, though, Superball was able to find his clinch entries, back Pet Yutong up to the ropes, cut him off with kicks, and then work inside the clinch with knees. Pet Yutong did a good job hand-fighting at distance to, to beat Superball into overextending, and then he'd counter with kicks, but he was a little bit overwhelmed as the fight went on. Th they fought, I think, four times, and Superball has won all of them, but this was probably their closest fight. Uh, Pet Yutong might have had an argument for winning. It was a pretty close fight, though I thought Superball got it. But Superball ended up taking the decision with steady clinch work and consistent pressure. And finally, on Thursday, October 4th, Capitan Pet Yindi fought Chamok Tong Fighter Muay Thai. Capitan is the Lumpany 154-pound champ. Chamok Tong is number 5 ranked at Rajadamnern 140-pounds division. They fought at 142 pounds here. Capitan has been fighting up in weight a lot recently. Um, he was elite quite a few years ago, I think maybe back in 20, 2016, 2015, I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head, um, but he's been fighting up well past his best weight and been kind of, looked kind of unmotivated and not very committed lately, but he's recently got to the to the Pet NG gym and it's kind of seemed to revitalize his career, so it's really nice to see him back down at 140, 142, fighting uh, relatively elite competition again. Uh, Capitan is a moy mat, he has heavy hands and low kicks. It's a really good slick boxer too. Good counter puncher, throws complex combinations. Chamok Tong is a clincher, so he wants to come forward, uh, snuff Capitan's punches with his hand fighting, get into the clinch and work him over with knees. Capitan did a really good job using complex punching combinations early. He would uh, use the jab to distract Chamok Tong and then hit him up the middle or outside with uppercuts and hooks. He'd mix inside and outside the guard on his combinations, using hooks to get Chamok Tong to close his guard to the inside, and then hooking around them. He was landing consistently with a really nice rear uppercut. His leg kicks were getting to Chamok Tong as well. He worked both legs, uh, outside and inside leg kicks, to the lead leg, and he also threw kicks to the rear leg behind punching combinations. So he'd throw like a jab, lead hook, and then back Chamok Tong with a hard uppercut. Then as Chamok Tong backed up, he'd step in deep and kick the rear leg. Chamok Tong started pushing into the clinch more aggressively later, but Capitan's strong counterpunches dissuaded him from being too aggressive. Capitan would throw up a high guard as well when Chamok Tong came forward, and that allowed him to get inside position in the clinch when Chamok Tong tried to grab around him to enter, and he could use that inside position to frame off and block the elbows Chamok Tong was throwing. 
Capitan also did a good job as Chamok Tong became more aggressive, countering his forward pressure with body kicks and changing the angle to turn him into punches along the ropes. So that was a nice performance from Capitan, and I'm really excited to see him down at 140, 142 pounds, fighting elite competition again. So I look forward to his next fight. That about covers the most important Muay Thai fights of the past couple weeks. To end the podcast, we have a question from our patron Silas Martin, who wants to know why we don't see more Muay Thai fighters in MMA. To answer this, I'm bringing in my good friend and colleague, boxing historian, and person who knows a lot about Muay Thai, Kyle McLaughlin. Seems to me they have the best traditional base to build a well-rounded MMA game off of, but so far Loma Lukbunmi is the only tie in the UFC. I'm guessing it's something to do with the gym structure, but I don't really know shit about Muay Thai, so would love to hear your guys' takes on this. So I brought on Kyle McLaughlin, uh, boxing historian, and as you all know, well-known uh, knower of things about Muay Thai, to help me discuss this. So do you have any initial thoughts on why we don't see many top-level Thai fighters in MMA, Kyle? Uh, yeah, I, I do actually. Um, it's, it's, as I'm sure you already know, Ryan, it's a very deep and uh, sort of a long-winded topic to go into. But um, one of the main sort of reasons is the fact that obviously we've discussed before how Muay Thai works in Thailand, and that is that it's an official place to gamble. It's the national sport. And these are things that are that have been in the way of the development of MMA in Thailand, because, of course, the people that run Muay Thai, especially in the Bangkok uh, main stadiums, be it you know, the army, for, ex- for example, will obviously run a lot of things in Thailand um, or the local police force, etc., etc. They don't want another sport coming in, taking away eyes, taking away athletes and taking away potential gamblers, ticket buyers, etc., etc., because those are all the things that keep Muay Thai uh, ticking around. And I'm old enough to remember um, when Muay Thai, sorry, when MMA uh, started making headway in Thailand, there was a there was a promotion called, I, I believe it's called Dare, but it was D A R E. Whether it's called D A R E or Dare, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure. But um, they had a couple of shows. They weren't they weren't great. Um, and then the Thai government, certainly uh, high-ranking officials. Uh, put a blanket ban on MMA in Thailand. You were not allowed to have MMA contests in uh, Thailand at all. So um, I think, you know, in any um, instance they can stamp out MMA, they they will. I mean, obviously now we're seeing MMA shows with one championship of putting shows on and, you know, we are getting... MMA isn't as much of a problem in Thailand now. But um, the idea of fighters, why we haven't seen fighters going over there uh, over to the sport of MMA, well, we've seen some. Most of them pass their best, obviously. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, they want to keep the prime fighters, the kind of fighters that are interesting enough to get people gambling, in the Muay Thai stadiums. Uh, and that is really why you will, at least not for a while, um, and I'm talking years and years, I mean, I think that whole dare MMA situation was probably the best part of 10 years ago now. Um, that's why you won't see, at least for a long time, without a big seismic change in in all of thailand let alone just combat sports because people think that you know you know it's a small circle in it being a, a combat sports fan right but obviously in thailand it's 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 not it's bigger than that do you know what i mean so um i mean i don't know what your thoughts are Ryan, but generally i think that it's, it's more a case of these fighters haven't really got much of a say of what they want to do you know they can't just go oh do you know what i'm going to do mma now because the fact of the matter is they'll make more money fighting in Muay Thai and people think this what make more money in Muay Thai than M- MMA 
Well, of course they will, because the side bets and um, certain fighters like Sangmini and, and Rod Tang are making really decent purses now. And, you know, would you rather fight in Bangkok in your chosen, uh, you know, your chosen discipline against people you know and maybe make twenty to $30,000 if you're lucky or go to UFC and fight for 10 and 10? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, um, like you mentioned, a lot of institutional factors that are preventing kind of the meshing of Muay Thai and MMA. Um, I think it was only recently legalized MMA in Thailand, right? Like, I think I you think, were allowed yeah. to train it, but you weren't allowed to put on pro fights. Yeah, I mean, they, they had pro fights and then they literally said no more. And that was a long time ago. I think maybe they phased it back in, but it's still not big now. I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, the only people that really put shows on in, in Bangkok are, are one championship. And obviously yeah. the whole Chatri uh, sort of uh, connection to Muay Thai is well established. So I assume that um, he has little difficulty getting shows on. Yeah, definitely. I think that's accurate. And um, even without the institutional factors, if that were no longer a problem and the Thai government supported um, like athletes going into MMA, there's still a lot of factors that are working against that, um, like the, the intermixing of Muay Thai athletes with MMA fighters. First of all, the infrastructure just really isn't there at all. Uh, they have um, the AKA Thailand, but I don't think a lot of, like you don't really see uh, prime Thais training there. They have a couple like really good older ties who used to be stadium champions that are their trainers, uh, but it's mostly like foreign MMA fighters that go there. It's not um, you don't see like high level Muay Thai athletes training at Tiger or doing camps there for a long time. Um, well, well, I just want to jump in quickly, Ryan. The reason, of course, we have seen some older Muay Thai guys like Same and and other such fighters uh, uh, and fighting in one championship, um, and, they, and obviously, of course, they then fight in it, some of them fought in MMA as well. And the reason some of them fought MMA is because like Sam A, they go and train fighters in Evolve. Yeah. And Evolve obviously take a lot of ties over there to train their MMA fighters or their MMA students in Muay Thai. And obviously there's some sort of cross-pollination there, which is why you see some of the older dudes then fight in MMA because they have been cross-training once they go to Singapore. I think um, Segatau, was it, took like two MMA fights? Uh, I think, when he was, I think like, you might be 30s. right. Yeah. I think you might be right, yeah. They they have um like some of those older ties that they put against uh like regional um but the, but like the flyweight guys the flyweight as well, didn't they? Um the, yes. he's about fifty five years old. Um I think is he still the champ? That's uh Dej no, Wrong Yeah, yeah, Dej Wrong so he lost he lost about and I think he gets chinned basically every other fight now. So um because yeah, he's, he's about he's about thirty nine and looks about fifty nine because as we've said all the way back to the first episode of this quite brilliant podcast in my opinion. Uh, you once you're 25, 26, 27, it's the equivalent of being 40 years old in any other combat sport. If you're if you're a neck muay thai at top top level, yeah, for sure. These gyms, um, like we mentioned, Tiger Muay Thai, they don't really have the the young prime ties there. And the gyms that no. do have them, they don't have any crossover with MMA. They don't have any wrestling training. There's not really. I don't know too much about wrestling in thailand but i assume there's no really good place to get wrestling there they don't have there, any kind of wrestling is, presence there is, on the world there stage there is no wrestling i don't think there's even any there's not really any judo um t- judo players from thailand either nope. there's no judo i don't think not as far as i know ones, anyway. yeah they don't meddle oh, well, no, in any no, kind I'm of lying, stage I'm grappling i'm lying ryan there was a really high level judo that fought stamp fairtex at the um at the, la- <laughs> at the last one card some woman who'd taken two judo classes we were assured she had a brown belt 
and yet uh, she clearly had no clue whatsoever about, about oh God. hip hip throws or even minor think, um, trips because she was getting thrown she, around. No, I think she was a silver medalist in the Asian Games. That's what I don't uh, think Ronda that's Rousey's true. Ronda Rousey's little sister or something like I that. I don't think that's, that's what true. Charity she was told a hobbyist. Me. She was a hobbyist, man. She <laughs> was a hobbyist. No, she was not a, a good <laughs> judoka at all. But um, so yeah, these these gyms they're not they don't have any kind of wrestling presence. There's no nobody is going over to like Sanctino's gym or Kem's gym up in the mountains and showing them how to wrestle. And it's not like they don't care about MMA or wrestling. These guys want to do Muay Thai. Their gyms want them to do Muay Thai. And like the way that the gym structure works, the gyms take a percentage of their pay. Um, and guys are kind of beholden to their gyms in a lot of ways. The gyms like buy out their contracts and stuff. So they don't really have a lot of choice in who they fight unless they're like you see Rod Tang, guys like Rod Tang, Sangmini, they have a higher presence and they have maybe a little bit more choice, but they're not, they can't just say, okay, I'm done with this. I want to make a serious transition to MMA. Um, another point as well, you mentioned Tiger Muay Thai, obviously Pete Young trains there and, um, and everything. That's in Phuket, which is an island. Uh, mainly a tourist island, great place to put a gym. People go on holiday and, you know, go on vacation and they want to try a bit of training or fighters go there with their families. They get the idyllic sort of beach life, uh, maybe party time at night at night time, which is Phuket is known for. They get to go to the gym during the day. There are no top level Muay Thai fighters who train in Phuket. There, as we know, the regions of Thailand are obviously down south, in the northeast, in Isan. And generally, you know, the fighters all want to gravitate to Bangkok. And that's why there's so many gyms in Bangkok. And obviously there are some great gyms in, in Pattaya as well, because it, it's not very far away. It's, you know, it's the equivalent of driving, you know, from oh, I don't know, New York to New Jersey or something stupid like that for our American listeners. And England, uh, Southampton to London for, for anyone who's from, from the UK. It's, it's, it's an hour and a half, 90 minute drive. You know what I mean? Um, right. So there are some good gyms in, in Pattaya and some, some good fighters in, in Pattaya. Uh, um and I don't know why I'm saying Pattaya. I've never said Pattaya in my entire life. It's Pattaya. I don't know why I've ever said... I don't know why I'm even saying that. I'm trying to act cool, I think, Ryan. Sorry. Bro, you're talking to somebody who has absolutely no idea how to pronounce any of this shit. So yeah, but that's you can, my job. You can pass I'm anything here, I'm off here, by me. I'm here, I'm here to pronounce intro- stuff that I know how to pronounce. And, you know, I've been to Pattaya, and I've never, ever said Pattaya. It's Pattaya, Pattaya. For anyone who knows the song, it's a great song. I won't sing it. Um, it's quite risque. Sing it, Kyle. No, I won't. It's quite risque. <laughs> Search it on YouTube, Ryan, later, and uh, the FBI will turn up at your door. Um, so, yeah, but obviously all, 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 the, all the fighters want to gravitate to Bangkok because that's where the fights are. There's four stadiums there. You know, the big money's there. And there are heaps and heaps and heaps of excellent gyms there. Excellent, excellent gyms. Obviously, of course, in uh, Patea, there is Fairtex, which has obviously got a lot of... Um, Notable fighters and you know who we talked about earlier. We talked about Stan Fairtex. She trains there, um, and another another such fighters. You know that's what that's 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 a particularly clean and nice gym. It's not one of your rural. You know, it's I wouldn't say it's a great gym by any means, but it's a really nice gym um, yeah. to visit. Um, but yeah, generally no one's going to Phuket. And as far as I know, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't Tiger started by Mike Swick? Yes, I think it was. Uh, yeah, so it's that was AKA gym. Thailand, right? Yeah, but now it's now it's is oh is that not is Tiger is Tiger and Phuket nothing to do with Mike Swick? 
Are we gonna so we actually gonna do the whole I'm gonna type on Google and search. Yeah, AKA Thailand is a little bit different. That's the one Mike Swick opens. Okay, okay, okay. That's in Phuket too, so Okay, okay, okay. Got ya. That makes sense. Uh, it says here UFC star Mike Swick returns to Tiger uh Muay Thai. So maybe he trained there and then after that. Maybe that's why I'm making the Mike Swick connection. Maybe he yeah, did actually train there. Yeah. Quite a bit of crossover there. It was around I think it was I think he was trained there around the sort of the time he fought like Dan Hardy, maybe, because at that point it, Mike Swick was sort of taken seriously and people I mean I like Mike Swick, he's a good fighter, but at that point it was like he's gonna get a title shot and he lost to Dan Hardy, if I remember correctly, which which says a lot really. Um but yeah, I, I'm guessing that that's why I made the connection. But of course he must have really liked that experience because then he started the AK Thailand thing, which I have no idea how that's going. Is that still a thing? I honestly, I haven't heard too much of it. You heard it um, when Swick first started up, it was kind of big and then it, it kind was, of petered it out. And then a what Tiger Muay Thai became the big thing there. And nobody really talked about AKA Thailand much anymore. Yeah. I mean, it looks like it's, yeah, it looks like it's still going. I have no idea who's there anymore. I mean, you and I are online all day, every day, and I've not seen anything about it for a long time, like you say. No. But yeah, so the gym structure just really isn't there for anybody to get good, consistent MMA training, especially from a young age. And even if, I think my my last point is that even if you did fix all that, you got good MMA gyms into Thailand, uh, you got all these athletes training MMA and learning MMA while they're doing Muay Thai from a young age, which is like a very, very big hill to climb and probably not something that's going to happen anytime in the near future, if at all. The, the weight classes still just don't really work out often. Um, so Muay Thai starts at like 105 pounds in the stadiums. Their lowest belt in Rajadamner and Lumpany is 105 pounds. The highest division they have is basically 145. And that's like 145 is where the bloated 135ers fight. Guys like Sangmini, Nunglanlek, they're, they're, they're like gaining weight up to fight at 140, 145-ish, but they're not naturally that heavy. And you got a couple, so you have some guys, Yudsanklai, um, Sidichai, that are kind of naturally in those bigger divisions, but they usually outgrow the stadiums pretty quickly and go to kickboxing. You'll I think probably we do have see a that smaller weight jab. class, right? We have a hundred, I think we did have 102 pounds for a while. I'm not sure if there is still 102 pounds. I think there might be. I yeah. Think actually might be an even smaller weight class. With the stadiums, I know, I think 105 is their lowest belt, but they probably right. put on different fights. Uh, like they had the, uh, what's it called? Teddy Bear, Pet Indy against um i forget his name but they had like a 226 pound fight a couple weeks wow. ago even though yeah that yeah. was very Ever, interesting I, mean, I, I saw the pictures people were you know were making a lot of meme worthy material out of that stuff yeah i was but, amazed he could get his legs up that high but yeah so they have basically the divisions are 105 to 140 and when you get up to 140 that's the like kind of the well they, they yeah. don't really have a heavyweight because it's not a bad division but it's like the middleweight of MMA where you're starting to be like, okay, the top guys are really good. And then there's not a lot of depth behind that. And then any higher, you have like three good guys maybe. Uh, and they're, they don't really have many people to beat up on. Like Rafi Singpatong, Rafi Bohik, I forget which one he goes by now. He is the 147 pound, I think, Lumpany champ. And he hasn't defended his belt in like two years because nobody really cares about those divisions. So the, the MMA divisions that people watch, that people care about, that are in the UFC are 125 to heavyweight. Uh, most of the Thai talent is somewhere between 110 pounds and 135, 140 pounds. 
So you have really strong divisions in those 100, 115, 118, and 122 divisions. Guys like um, Sayoto and Sayo Exichev Buntham, Rungnarai Kiatmukau, Satan Munglek, CP Freshmart. Uh, a lot of those really great guys, some of the best pound-for-pound fighters in Thailand, are at weights that just don't work out for MMA. 118 pounds, 115 pounds. Um, the the best Thai convert to MMA was Rambasamdit. Yeah. He was arguably the greatest strawweight in MMA history. He never he never fought at like any of the popular weights in MMA. He was 115 pounds. He beat some some good guys like Noboru yeah. Tahara, Ulysses he Gomez, did. who fought in the UFC. He was a shootout champ, right, Rambo? Yes. Yeah, he won the yeah, show People don't realize that, oh, they think it's like a you know shootout's like a fourth, fifth you know uh, organization out there. For a long time, it was not. It was legitimately one of the best promotions in the world, and it still does some pretty interesting stuff now. Um, and there was no other cha- There were no other champions at that weight. So really, Rumble was the best. And actually, you'll you'll know Ryan from watching his fights. He actually was pretty fucking good at MMA. Oh yeah, absolutely. He um he was so good. he went in he went into MMA obviously after his prime. He did a little bit of kickboxing after he graduated from Muay Thai. Then started his MMA run in like 2001. Um, yeah, he did a, a good job combining his Muay Thai with and blending it into an MMA game. He had good takedown defense, used his footwork really well in regards to that too. But yeah, it's that that thing again that they're not... Same with Tej Damrong, who he joined MMA, I think he was like, he was really fucking like 32 or something when he I started. Think, no, I think, I think older. I think maybe older. Yeah, he's 41 right now. So, but, I think he's about 35 or something like that. Yeah, I think so. He started in 2014. He's 41 right now. So yeah, he was super old, especially for a tie. And he had quite a good record. He beat some good guys. Um, he beat Robin Catalan, won the one strawweight championship. Not like elite guys, because again, this is 115 pounds. But well, actually, I think actually I think it was 115 pounds for a while, and I think now they force him to fight at 125. So he's even smaller, really. Oh, right. You know I haven't I mean? paid too much attention to him recently, but yeah. Um, so yeah, these the ties that are coming over to MMA, even if they want to do that, like half of them are pretty much out. Nobody's going to pay to watch 115-pound fighters fight. Well, I'll put a gun to your head, Ryan. Just make this a little bit interesting for our listeners and for the patron who requested this question. I'll put a gun to your head, and I want you to pick a guy based on your infinite knowledge of combat sports, because you do have that. Oh, I don't want you to pick a guy that's banging his prime, obviously. I want you to pick a guy that looks like he's sort of outgrowing the stadiums. And I want you to do, and obviously I'm not trying to be reductive here, but a year of sprawl training. You know <laughs> what I mean? A year a year of jiu-jitsu training. Let's just assume we can get him up to a semi-competent level. Not semi-competent, just not the... He's, he's, he's not got no experience whatsoever on the ground, yeah? And with wrestling and that, yeah? Pick me a guy and... That is currently fighting in, in in Muay Thai. I don't want to kickbox and convert. I want a Muay Thai guy, just so people have got an idea to go and, for someone to go and look at that you think would be perfectly primed to make the transition. Just a hypothetical. Okay. So um, I talked a little bit more about which styles translate well to MMA on my listening yeah. questions podcast. So if you're interested in a more in-depth rundown. You can go listen to that. But I have two names that stand out that I think would translate really well in their style to an MMA game. Generally, I think the Famuse, the really slick outfighters, translate best because they have kind of an inbuilt 
uh, defense against takedowns. If you're a Moy Cow or you're a Moy Matt who relies on coming forward and clinching or coming forward and throwing leather, you you really have to get good at sprawling. You you really have to know what you're doing in regards to wrestling very quickly. But the Famuse kind of don't as much. Like if you watch Israel Adesanya's fight with Wilkinson, Rob Wilkinson or something in the, his early UFC days, his takedown defense looked pretty shoddy. It wasn't very good at all. But he can defend a lot of that. He can prevent the situations where takedowns happen with footwork um, just by not being in range for them. And you saw as he developed and as he grew more comfortable in MMA, his takedown defense became legitimately very good. So those Famuse can buy themselves more time just by using their footwork to avoid takedown situations. And guys I think are really prepared to do that would be Lidawada Sitikul and Chalam Paranchai. Lidawada I've talked a lot about him before. Um, he beat, he had a huge upset win over Jadvica back in 2016, uh, and he became a big star. And then his career after that in stadiums was a little bit disappointing. He's been out of stadiums for, I think, two years now. Uh, yeah. He's made a, a return to Muay Thai, kind of. He's fought in a couple Super Champ shows and beat up on No Hope, yeah. no hope for Foreigners. Just Falangs, yeah. But I think he's kind of growing. Um, he's 140 pounds right now, so he's up there with the biggest weights in Thailand. Um, he has a, a really slick boxing style. He's an excellent boxer, uses those throwaway jabs really well, and he has great angling footwork on the outside and, the, and in the pocket too. Uh, against In his fight against Nantiket, like 2018, he did uh, some legitimate, like the footwork, stuff that reminded me of Lomachenko, taking those hop step shifting angles in the pocket and elbowing out of them. Uh, so he's got really great footwork. And again, the kind of stuff that you can use to defend takedowns without having to learn how to wrestle immediately. If you can jab guys up on the outside, keep them off and keep them on the outside with your footwork, changing directions against the cage, pivoting out, makes it a lot harder for wrestlers or guys who want to get you to the cage to enforce that kind of game on you. Chalam Paranchai is kind of similar. He's still uh, elite in stadiums, and I think he has quite a while to go, so I don't think he's like, necessarily out of his prime there. He is fighting at 126 right now, so he'd be a flyweight. Uh, he's kind of similar to Litawada in a few ways. Very good boxer, very sharp counter-puncher, uh, and he's got that really slick outside footwork again. Good at pivoting off, changing direction, and misleading guys with his footwork. So I think those are two guys who could... Uh, obviously be really sharp on the outside and kind of dazzle MMA fighters with finesse, but also have a good style that works well with the takedowns that they wouldn't be, if you could get them like legitimate MMA training, ship them off to city kickboxing or something, because there's nowhere in Thailand that can really prepare you to, to transition from a pure striking game to MMA. But if you ship them out to city kickboxing, they'll have them pivoting around guys, boxing them up and defending their takedowns. I've got to say as well, for anyone who's not aware, you put a tie against a non-tie, someone who appears to be a more tactical guy or a technician in Thailand, suddenly becomes a knockout artist. Yeah. And it's, you know, there are guys that maybe, I mean, if you look at it in, in a boxing sense, obviously boxers are even more prepared to, you know, or more well prepared to taking punches. Someone like um, Virapon, you know, in Muay Thai, he has maybe... 30 knockouts out of you know maybe 40 knockouts in 200 fights he's legitimately one of the hardest punches that ever lived do you know what i mean like that's a really high that's a quite a high ko percentage do you know what i mean yeah. like because generally 
okay as well. It's spread over the body, like we always say. It's not punch-centric, etc., etc. But these guys are born defensive fighters at the top level. Even a warrior, gatty-type fighter has got to have some sort of semblance or defence. Or they never would have got to the Bangkok stadiums in the first place. So generally, like, you know, and we've discussed before as well, fighters like the guy you just mentioned, Jovacar, who's a famous clinch monster, he's now shown more to do with his hands. That's because he probably already had it in his back pocket. These guys train all of that stuff, but generally in the stadiums, you fight to your strengths and your style, etc. And, you know, generally, you know, ties are so just well-versed technically. So, you know, if any base combat sport that isn't grappling-based is well-prepared to go into MMA, it's a tie because they're already used to having to learn a lot of different facets of a of a combat sport. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting. It's an interesting question. Good springboard to other things as well. So, um, yeah, sorry. Silas, you gave us that question. Silas Martin. Thanks for the Very, question, Silas. That's an awesome question. And if you want more of those sort of questions, I'm sure Ryan will tell at the end of the episode how to do so. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, guys. That wraps it up for this week. Um, remember to subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon slash the fight site. Patreon.com slash fight site. Just so you know, Ryan, let's not get it wrong. <laughs> Glad I have you, Kyle, for the, the geography lesson on Thailand and the, the promotion help. No Do you doubt. have anything upcoming soon that you want to promote, Kyle? I asked that uh, just, to, just to depress you because I know you don't. Yeah, no, I do. I do. Oh, really? Yes, I do. I do. I do, Ryan. Please enlighten I'm fi- us. I'm finally making use of the masses of Japanese boxing magazines that I bought um and redoing and revamping and basically completely rewriting a piece that i wrote on the um hey let's tie in the thailand while we're here uh, against uh, south korean uh, legendary monster sun kill moon who fought calcor galaxy brother of cal sai in two classic boxing matches well the second one is an absolute classic which we've also run a piece before on the site by uh, uh matt joyer but we don't want to mention Ooh. matt um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, Sun Kill Moon, a piece that I'm writing uh, at the moment. And obviously, I've got the bases a bit done, just going through all these old magazines and uh, getting some information that probably Western audience wouldn't have uh, read before. And um, one of my favorite fighters of all time, anyway. And also, we have uh, a load of uh, stuff in the pipeline. And we're just waiting. And let's tie it in again to this podcast. For one championship to find Giorgio Petros in a fight because we've got a lot of uh, Petro content which we've been waiting for, to publish for a while. And um, just for the Muay Thai fans that are listening, I have written a one of my, I was about to say one of my famous historical pieces, but pr- even for me, that's quite an arrogant thing to say. Um, let's just say one of the things that I'm known for, um, I've written a piece on the Burkow versus Petro draw, which is, you know, probably one of the most talked about fights in kickboxing history. And, uh, you know, even today, people want to, you know, who do you think won and why did they never rematch and et cetera. So I've actually um, read some, that fight was actually in K1 Sweden, I think. So I actually got some Swedish newspaper reports at the time. I got them translated and uh, that's the kind of in-depth, interesting shit you can expect from the fight site. So what have you got coming out, Ryan, if you'd like to put people on the spot? Yeah, at the moment, I'm still working on a long series on Sanchez rivalries i'm writing about his rivalry with um singdom kiat Mukau right my, now and i'm gonna my do my favorite yeah Sing-dom, one of my favorites singdom's fantastic and i'm gonna do a, a series on all of science rivalries unfortunately i can't find 
there's only one of his fights with Noprat available, and that's really interesting because it's the only Noprat is the only one who actually won his rivalry with Sainchai. I think it ended up like three wins for Noprat and a draw or something like that. And there's only one of those fights available, so that's kind of sad. But there's tape on most of them, so it'll be really interesting. I'm also working on some short videos. We got a Nathan Corbett video coming out pretty soon, and I'm watching tape for a Kong Chai video right now. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but he's very fun. We can't even pronounce Senchai, so I'm not not surprised. So my good good mate Senchai, of course. Anyways, on that note, let's wrap this up now before Kyle shits on me anymore. But I'm eagerly awaiting that Sunkill Moon piece in a year's time, and I can't wait to read the Puka Petrosian piece as well. You can read them both on there now, Brian. You have access to the site, but to the uh, faithful listeners, you're going to have to wait. Alright, thanks for joining us, guys. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. They hands and feet and bones and knees. This is an art of boxing you would all love to learn. Ooh, Suck them hard with your soul and then kick out and all. Ah.